Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather Charlie Chaplin and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. I'm Roger Hearing. And on this edition, the microchip maker NVIDIA, now valued at $2 trillion, sees the whole chip industry on the rise. More than 500 new sanctions on Russia from the US as the world marks the second anniversary of the start of the Ukraine war. Germany legalizes cannabis use. We hear from the head of the German Cannabis Producers Association. Plus, why the US government is selling off a lot of helium and how much commercial information should you share with your spouse? There's a duty of trust and confidence in a marriage and uh, that if you violate that duty of trust and confidence, information that's shared with you by going out and without the consent of the person who's shared it with you, trading in the market or tipping someone else that you've actually violated the law. That's all coming up. But first, what a week for NVIDIA. Starting earnings, startling earnings, I should say, that lifted global markets. And now the chipmaker has become one of the world's most valuable companies, worth around $2 trillion. Not bad for a company born just over 30 years ago with a balance of $40,000. The secret is that NVIDIA is making what the world wants, microprocessor chips that power computers faster and more powerful than ever before and enable artificial intelligence. So I asked Bob O'Donnell, President and Chief Analyst at Technalysis Research, based in California, what next for the sector? With generative AI and this whole AI explosion, we're seeing the critically important role that chips play in making all of this possible. NVIDIA happens to be the leader here. And oh, by the way, it's obviously their chips, but they also happen to have software that they use that is widely used. And that's part of the reason for their success. But ultimately, it boils down to these amazing chips that can do these generative AI types of applications that everyone is finding a use for. And that's what's really driving this. And oh, by the way, it's not going to end anytime soon. There's a lot of growth opportunities still, I think. Yeah, that's interesting, because I, I also want to have, you know, is it one of these tides that lifts all boats? Are we going to see AMD and, and ARM also benefiting from this? 
I absolutely think you will because, you know, whenever you have somebody who's that large, you're going to see a lot of competitors aiming after them. And frankly, even NVIDIA's best customers are still looking for alternatives. They want to have other people. Uh, and so that's absolutely going to drive more success, I believe, for AMD. We're going to see ARM get more involved with that. Companies like Qualcomm as well. Uh, there's a bunch of smaller companies who are doing AI accelerator chips. I think you're going to see more focus on those companies. And then, of course, all of the services that are leveraging this, what we're seeing from Microsoft and Google and Meta and what have you, because this is the kind of, you know, once in a generation change that's going to drive enormous uh, impact in business, in consumer life, and what have you. And it's going to play itself out over several years. And we've seen uh, predatory behavior before, I mean, to do with ARM, of course. Are we going to see uh, people out there trying to buy NVIDIA? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, well, oh, to, to purchase NVIDIA? No. I don't think so. <laughs> Not at a two trillion dollar level. I think that would be extraordinarily difficult to do. No, I mean, look. Obviously, the I would say the reverse. What we'll see, perhaps, is you know Nvidia being able to take advantage of this enormous war chest that they're building up, uh, and being able to purchase other things, and that's potentially will be much more interesting to watch. Well, I was going to ask you about that, because that's why I was making the point. Because I think NVIDIA, you know, they, they talk about themselves maybe now in the same breath as the big boys in the tech space. Could they diversify and get into that? You know, the same sort of areas as, as Meta and, 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 and others in that space. Well, I don't think they're going to do all of that, but they are building up their software business. And one of the potential growth opportunities for them is some licensing, software licensing of some of the generative AI models that they themselves have produced. So I think it will be more. And one of the things they're doing, for example, is around this notion of what's called a digital twin, where you make a digital replica of a factory or of a, of a machine or what have you, uh, and then Imagine how it would work in the digital world before you build it in the real world. And that virtual simulation kind of concept. So I think we'll see NVIDIA probably branch off into those kind of directions, certainly first. Now, you mentioned about how some of the big boys will be also trying to get into this area, the chip making, even more chip designing. Are we going to see some completely left field companies coming and some completely new boys on the block trying to get into this as well? Because once you've got that much money circulating, people are going to be interested. I think you're absolutely right. And we are seeing this. I mean, Microsoft just announced uh, recently they're going to be building their own chips, right? Who, who would think of Microsoft as a chip maker? And oh, by the way, they're going to use Intel to build those chips. And then you've got cloud companies like Google, like Amazon, um, also building their own chips. Uh, so and again, part of this is in competition to or at least as an alternative to NVIDIA. And Bob, we talked about the, the positives in all this, but uh, as it seems to happen quite often in the tech world, you see a massive boom followed by a massive bust. Perhaps yeah. NVIDIA may be expanding too far, too fast. What are the risks? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's there's always that kind of risk. Like if turns out the generative AI uh, things don't do quite as well as a lot of people are betting on, uh, then we could see that being a challenge. Obviously, if we see more of these companies successfully compete with NVIDIA, that could obviously impact NVIDIA's business. The reality, though, is the chip design and making process is a multi-year process. So, you know, and right now, NVIDIA has got more orders than they can handle. And for the foreseeable future, they're in great shape. Bob O'Donnell there. Now, this weekend marks two years since Russia invaded its neighbor, Ukraine. 
The war has brought destruction and death on a scale Europe hasn't seen since the Second World War, and a new low in relations between Moscow and the rest of the world. The death in custody of Russia's main opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, has, if possible, worsened relations still further. And now the United States and the European Union have each announced new sanctions. Washington said the more than 500 new measures would ensure President Putin paid an even steeper price for his aggression abroad and his repression at home. The European Commission's package is designed to limit Russia's access to military technologies. The Russian Foreign Ministry, for its part, said it considers the sanctions illegal. But the perennial question, will any of this make a difference or will in fact change anything? Joining me now is Edward Fishman, Senior Research Scholar at Columbia's Centre on Global Energy Policy and a former US sanctions official. Edward, thanks for being with us. I suppose that is a key point. Are these sanctions more targeted? Are they finding out the wrinkles, the the backroom deals, the the ways in which Russia has so far evaded the, the other sanctions? Look, Roger, I think that's exactly right. I think today's sanctions really represent an effort to plug holes in the sanctions that already existed. You know, there was an initially a, a big sort of raft of sanctions that came out in 2022. Over time, Russia has learned how to evade them. And I think what the West is trying to do now is trying to restore some of the efficacy that's been lost. Unfortunately, though, I don't think today's action represents any meaningful escalation of pressure in Russia. So I'd really view this more as enforcing and shoring up existing sanctions as opposed to really upping the pressure on Putin. Well, you're on the center on global energy policy, and energy is at the core of this, isn't it? Because that's how Russia fundamentally still makes its money, oil revenues. You don't think these latest sanctions are going to do anything to, to turn that tap off? On the margin, they could help. You know, certainly it's better to see Savkomflot, which is the Russian state-owned shipping company and ships most of Russian oil. It's good to see that company on the sanctions list. But mind you, the Biden administration simultaneously waived sanctions on most of Savkomflot's fleet today. So really, I, I would view it as a, a shot across the bow. You know, so far, and this has been the case since the beginning of the war, the West has tried to maximize pressure on Russia's economy while sparing the main part of Russia's economy, which is Russia's oil sector. And I think, unfortunately, we're, we've run up against the limit of how much pressure we can apply to Russia without really aggressively targeting that oil. Well, exactly. So what does need to be done then? What would actually make a difference? I think the biggest step that the West could take would be to impose financial sanctions on all payments for Russian oil. So what this basically would look like would be to tell banks around the world that if you are buying, you know, if you're helping Russia buy oil, you can't repatriate that money to Russia. Um, That type of sanction has been used before. In fact, it's exactly the sanction that was applied to Iran and what led to more than $100 billion of Iran's oil revenues locked up in foreign bank accounts. And even to to this day, as you know, we know, Iran is trying desperately to access its frozen funds abroad. Um, We haven't done anything like that to Russia yet. And I think it's a major flaw in the sanctions regime. But is that because it can't be done? I mean, is is it actually possible? Because as we know, a lot of deals are being done via China, India, uh, countries that perhaps aren't necessarily on board with what Washington is trying to achieve. So maybe that thing you're talking about is going to be very hard to do. Um, I'm not saying it would be easy, but again, it, it worked against Iran, and Iran's oil customers are basically the same as, as, as Russia's, right? China is the biggest customer for Iranian oil, and they've complied with this sanction. Remember, this is not asking China or India to stop buying Russian oil. You're basically asking the banks just not to send Russia the money outside of your, your country uh, for the oil. 
I think the biggest risk and the reason why the West hasn't taken this approach is that, of course, Putin could respond by saying that he's just not going to sell any oil. Um, you know, and that would be a huge, you know, uh, shock to oil supplies and would lead to a spike in oil prices. Now, I don't think many people think that's a credible threat because, you know, it would be very destructive to Russia, too, for Russia to stop selling oil. But I think that fear and that uncertainty about Putin's rationality has been what stayed the West's hands so far. Edward, thank you for speaking to us. Edward Fishman there of the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy. The Global Story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles. Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world, but very different ones online. One global story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a, a very dark shadow. This looks like a message. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to the World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Let's take a look then at what's been going on on the markets today. And joining me is Chief Economist, FHN Financial, Chris Lowe. Chris, thanks for being with us again. Well, we talked about NVIDIA, of course, at the beginning of the programme. Uh, and in the point about NVIDIA was its success really boosted global markets in quite an extraordinary way. Has that continued today? It, it has, to some extent. Uh, you know, obviously, there's... It's Friday. There was some profit taking toward the close. But, uh, you know, I think that the, the logic here, NVIDIA, of course, the primary producer of chips used for AI, artificial intelligence. But there are so many other players that are in that sector or benefit from artificial intelligence. And so uh, if their sales are better than expected, if their guidance is so much better than expected, then, uh, you know, we start to extrapolate strength to other players as well. And did all this affect what we, you and I always talk about, really, when we're coming on the program, which is what's going to happen in terms of the Fed and interest rates going forward? Because many people thought, uh, you know, that, that what was going on perhaps may even have walked back expectations for Fed cuts just because obviously it's a sign that the economy is booming. Do you read it that way? Well, not not necessarily exactly like that but there is a logic to it because one of the things the fed is very focused on is financial conditions and that huge surge in global equities uh the last couple of days has created an enormous amount of wealth it is effectively easier financial conditions and that's something that uh, if you're contemplating rate cuts maybe you wait a little longer yeah, because the New York Fed Reserve President John Williams, he was talking to Axios today, and he said uh, that they were on track to cut interest rates, interest rates later this year. But that is about as vague as you can get, isn't it? Well, yeah, and he often is. He likes to play it safe. But, yeah, we, we've heard from uh, three Fed governors yesterday saying effectively the same thing. We think we're probably going to cut rates this year, but don't look for it anytime soon. And what are you expecting in terms of jobs figures, which is a thing that, uh, again, we always keep an eye on with regard to all all this? Well, you know, watching the uh, rate of people filing for unemployment insurance in the U.S., it fell uh, pretty significantly in the week that they did the employment survey. So it implies we'll get another strong one. 
Well, we will see. <laughs> we'll let that talk to you about it, Chris. Thanks very much, Chris Lowe there of FHN Financial. Now, Germany's become the latest country to make cannabis use legal. Parliament in Berlin held an unusually ferocious and emotional debate, but voted in the end to allow adults to possess small amounts of cannabis for personal use from April and smoke it in any pub in many public spaces. Well, it's estimated that more than 4 million people in Germany consume cannabis. That's about one in 20 citizens. So does this change mean the emergence of a legal, profitable cannabis market? I asked Jürgen Nomeyer, who is managing director of the German Cannabis Industry Association. It was a good step because at first we took out cannabis from the drug law. At second, we decided to decriminalize the consumers. At third, there will be some possibilities to be engaged in uh, some economic questions. Do you think that there will be a lot of money to be made for people who produce cannabis in Germany now? It is the market of medical cannabis. With this law, it is easier to grow in Germany. And it is easier for patients and for the doctors and so on to handle it. So this is a good movement. We will see a lot of opportunities to build up industrial hemp and to go into buildings and good farming and juicing and so on. But do you get the sense that there is a good big market for people like yourself now, that this is a good business opportunity? Yes, of course, because cannabis is a plant which is not only a drug, it's a medicine as well. And, and we forgot in Germany several decades that is a good farmer's market and it is a good climate production thing. So we have to face it. So today you're thinking this has been a very good thing for your industry, the legalization has changed things. Yes, it was a really good day, but we have to go forward because it is only possible with a legal way of production and, and selling and so on. You have to go the way for industrial hemp. Jürgen Neumeyer there of the Cannabis Industry Association in Germany. Now, last month, the U.S. General Services Administration held an auction. Normally, that means used federal cars and trucks, office supplies, buildings that are under the gavel. But this time, it was the Federal Helium Reserve that was up for sale. For about 100 years, the government there has stockpiled helium in underground caverns near Amarillo in Kenton, Texas. Originally, it was for lighter-than-air aircraft, but now it's used to provide essential supplies for MRI machines, semiconductor manufacturing, and, of course, party balloons. Well, the government's been trying to get the stockpile off its hands for nearly three decades, but some industries that rely on helium are pushing back against privatising it. Marketplace's Henry Epp reports. So why exactly are we selling off the Federal Helium Reserve? To answer that, we have to go back to a congressional session in April 1996. The National Helium Reserve has really been a laughingstock, I think, for several decades. Then Wisconsin Representative Scott Klug spoke for a lot of Republicans who were really into cutting government spending. And the old helium reserve, he said, was a perfect example of ballooning government waste. 
1996, it's clear that blimps have absolutely nothing to do with national security. They may have to do with some intriguing shots at the halftime of a Monday night football game, but I think they managed to do that without support from the federal government. The bill passed. President Bill Clinton signed it, and a few years later, the government started selling off its stockpile of helium. But they didn't foresee the demand in the early 2000s. Bo Sears runs a helium exploration business. As the government sell-off began, so did a sharp rise in demand for helium, mostly for semiconductor manufacturing and MRI machines. But there was a problem. That 1996 bill tied the price of government helium to a formula intended to pay off some federal debt, not to the market. It just became very cheap helium. So you and I, as U.S. taxpayers, were selling this stuff off for a song. And with a supply of cheap helium, private sector companies didn't really have any incentive to go look for more of the stuff themselves, Sears says. That led to rising prices and even a few shortages. Martha Morton felt them. She runs a biology and chemistry lab at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln that relies on liquid helium to cool huge magnets inside devices that can analyze the makeup of a cell. Helium cost went from 2 or $4 a liter and jumped to or $6 a liter. I'm now paying $19 a liter. In 2013, Congress tried to stabilize the market, and it mandated that most of the remaining government helium and the entire helium facility in Amarillo be sold by 2021, says Phil Kornbluth, an industry analyst. For a lot of people, it was like a kick the can down the road kind of thing. Now we've reached the can again. After a few more years of delays, in January, federal officials revealed bids from private companies that want to buy the helium reserve. There were just two. Meanwhile, some industry groups don't want a sale to go through. Net transfer is when we believe things are going to go sideways. Rich Gottwald is head of the trade group, the Compressed Gas Association. Right now, to get to refineries, the helium from the reserve flows through a pipeline that crosses three states. Gottwald says the federal government doesn't need to worry about state regulations in those areas, but a private owner will. Whether they be environmental regulations, whether they be gaining rights of way for certain areas where the pipeline goes through. Getting into compliance could take up to a year and a half, Gottwald says, and he thinks the reserve would need to be shut down that whole time. And when it shuts down, that means 20 percent of the U.S. supply of helium will go offline causing more supply problems for MRI operators, semiconductor companies, research labs. Gottwald wants the government to halt the sale process, work out the regulatory kinks, and hold another auction in a few years. The government has until early June to decide whether to accept a bid. But some helium buyers aren't waiting to find workarounds. A few years ago, Martha Morton, the lab director in Nebraska, installed a system that captures most of the helium that escapes from her magnets. I now recover 80% of what I use over a year. That means she's less reliant on the turbulent market. But she says the recovery system needs almost constant maintenance. And so me going off for a two-week vacation hasn't happened in a couple of years. But at least she's less worried about the federal helium reserve. Henry at reporting. Now, the husband of a BP employee has been charged with insider trading in the U.S., following claims he overheard details of calls made by his wife while working from home. Well, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission say Ty Loudon made $1.76 million in illegal profits. The regulator claimed Mr. Loudon heard several of his wife's conversations about BP's takeover of Travel Centers of America and bought shares in the firm. Following the announcement, Travel Centers' share price rose nearly 71%, and Mr. Loudon, they say, 
immediately sold all of his newly bought shares for a profit. But how much of a risk is this kind of information passing within families? How far are employees expected to conceal their business conversations from their partner? I've been speaking to Joan Hemingway, Professor of Law at the University of Tennessee College of Law. It's hard to tell exactly the frequency of this happening, but there are a number of reported cases in the United States. Of course, we only know about the ones that have been made public, uh, but they do often involve what we've called pillow talk cases here in the United States, where, uh, for example, a spouse or a romantic partner uh, shares information inadvertently or in a casual conversation that then ends up being used uh, to make money in the stock market or to be conveyed to someone else to do the same. And there's, there's absolutely nothing in the law that's specific about that kind of relationship and, and, and how it would affect a, a case brought by the SEC like this. You're absolutely correct. There's nothing statutory. There's nothing in the regulations. But courts have interpreted over time there being a duty between spouses. And this has changed um, over over the, the history of these kinds of cases uh, where they've said uh, that that there's a duty of trust and confidence in a marriage and uh, that if you violate that duty of trust and confidence, information that's shared with you uh, by going out and without the consent of the person who's shared it with you, trading in the market or tipping someone else that you've actually violated the law. But it's it's not very clear from the face of the law. And have businesses taken this on board when they obviously warn, as they would their employees, about the importance of confidentiality, client confidentiality, business confidentiality? Do they say to them, oh, by the way, don't say this in front of your husband or wife? Indeed, they do. And what's interesting is I practiced uh, corporate law for quite a long time in a firm, and our firm also had an insider trading policy where they basically said, please don't leave your computer open. Please don't talk to your husband about these things, uh, that would be violating our client confidences. And it's it's really much the same in, in other relationships. There also are a, a, sort of a whole new um, series of cases in the United States where just getting information about another firm while you're in the employment of one firm uh, could, in fact, lead to insider trading. So really, this is all about any private information that you get in connection with your job, regardless of who you share it with or how you share it and whether it relates to a client or even your own business. I read a very interesting article you wrote uh, called Women Should Not Need to Warn Their Husbands. Um, uh, Do you think there's a change that's necessary in practice or in law to try and deal with this? It's a great question. I've been investigating this and looking into these cases and other cases where information is shared in personal networks as opposed to professional networks. My my, I haven't reached the end of the study yet, but my my gut tells me that we've gone quite a distance in in protecting uh, confidential information of firms. Maybe maybe going too far with some of it uh, in in U.S. law, and so there's been a call, as you may know, in U.S. law to codify insider trading law. And to the extent that 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 uh, call to codify things succeeds. Uh, this debate will be very important. And I hope to have a a play in it in the United States to try and figure out exactly whether we should be regulating these personal networks as well as professional networks. What's your sense? There should be a regulation. It should be regulated. So it depends on what the basis of insider trading law is, which is also quite um, different in the United States than in other jurisdictions. We treat it as a version of fraud here in the United States. Uh, but if really what you want to do is to create an even market, which uh, much of Europe uh, and other and other countries do do outside of Europe, then in fact, yes, you should you should be protecting from disclosure uh, information in personal as well as professional networks. Uh, I'm not sure that that's where the law will end up here in the United States. We also like free markets here in the United States and like people to be able to do what they want with their with their information and their assets. Um, 
So it will be a very interesting debate, and it may depend on the political composition of our Congress uh, and uh, the executive branch when that issue comes forward. And I suppose at a human level, to be honest, if you if you conceal things from your your partner, your spouse, uh, on a regular basis, treat them almost as a as a potential foe. That's not going to do great for relationships, is it? It's not. No. Although, actually, interestingly, uh, because of the way U.S. law currently works, I, in my own situation, tried to protect my husband because I didn't want him to be dragged into any controversies either. So it was easy for me to just keep the information that I had quiet, not feeling that I was concealing it from him, just not sharing something that uh, that he didn't need to know. Uh, so it made our dinner table conversations actually much more enjoyable because I, I didn't feel like I had to walk on eggshells all the time. Good Lord, no. That would be a rather awkward relationship to maintain, I imagine. Joan Hemingway, the Professor of Law at the University of Tennessee College of Law, talking about that rather difficult issue. When is insider trading and pillow talk meeting? Bye-bye. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shopping-Gutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, Ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code TARASAGCLARK. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30-Euro-Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code TARASAGCLARK. Musik 